good song. Well, if you haven't guessed it by now, John chapter 2. Now, last week, uh, and we've been kind of working through this. There is a ton of stuff in John chapter 2 in this first story that we have looked at. And, uh, you know, the first week we were in it, which was before uh, New Year's, we, uh, we looked at the, uh, the third day aspect of it, and we got that all laid out. Last week we came back and we looked at the passage and saw and laid it out uh, how that Christ's first miracle uh, here in his public ministry. This is the first time that he does, if you put it in all in a chronological order, this is his first public ministry, which we talked about last week was turning the water to wine. And, uh, you know, I, I took the time last week to uh, deal with this from a practical aspect because you know, the Laodicean mindset today in, in the teaching today in many Baptist churches, uh, not just the evangelical clowns, but uh, in, uh, you know, in all the uh, other circuses that's going on out there, they teach that Christ, you know, drank fermented alcohol, so it's okay for God's people to drink socially or drink however you want to put it. And here is the proof text that he actually turned this water to wine. And again, you know, and I, I tell you all the time, you know, that you can't move forward with the Bible without understanding history. And the first part of the 20th century has been forgotten how that some of the greatest preachers that ever preached the Word of God uh, in that century, uh, especially one Billy Sunday, single-handedly brought prohibition in, which outlawed alcohol in any, in any shape or form. And uh, he preached on the evils of it. He preached on what the Bible said about it. And obviously today, like everything else in Christianity, and hey, even in the world, he was wrong. He had it wrong. And uh, old Billy Sunday wasted his whole life preaching about booze uh, when he should have just uh, you know, chugged up and had a little himself and uh, had time with his friends. But uh, we forgot those things. One of the things that you always want to watch in the demise of anything, it can be true in your life. It's certainly true in churches and Christianity, and it's certainly true in our own country, will be the demise of our value systems. When you start to see the values that once made your life good and great with God begin to dissipate and move out of your life, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> you're in trouble. You may not know it, but you're in trouble. When you see it in Christianity that what? A hundred years ago, a guy was preaching against the very things that we say is okay now. And of course, you know, government goes without saying. It's, it's completely lost its relevance as far as anything um, that once was good. And, uh, you know, we have forgotten the lessons of history. You know, this taught all of us uh, how that the New Testament church, this is taught from the pulpits across Kansas City, across the country. And for us, going through last week, it not only helped us know and understand now uh, how that it all works, uh, but it was a great learning experience on top of that of how that you set up a context. 
and everything that I try to do to you, I try to put within a biblical context so you can see it because context is truth. And many times we, we make the mistake of thinking that context has just to do with the Bible. No, no, no. Context has to do with everything, including your, our lives. Putting our life into context. And, uh, you know, context is truth. And in anything in your life, you got to get the bottom line. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 18.3 that says that he that answer a matter before it heareth it, it's foolishness and folly unto him. You'll wind up looking like a fool when you shoot your mouth off without ever finding out the facts and putting it into a context. And I showed you how that from the definitive chapter on wine in the Bible, and that would be Deuteronomy chapter 32, I showed you that the two types of wine, 32.14, talked about the pure blood of the grape, which was grape juice. And then in 32.32 and 33, you saw the devil's cup, which was the fermented, which was the venom of asps. And then along with that, I didn't read this last week, but in Hosea chapter 4, verse 11, the two wines are clearly laid out. For he says there that whoredom and wine, comma, and new wine take away the heart. Clearly showing you that there's a wine and a new wine in the Bible. And Deuteronomy chapter 32 will clearly lay that out for you. And then clearly along with that, you show that, uh, you know, one represents the blood of Christ and the other represents the devil's cup. And because God never violates his own principles once he establishes a truth, God would never give the devil's cup to God's people. Uh, only Baptist preachers and neo-evangelical Christians would do that. And of course, for the devil's cup, you want to see Revelation chapter 17, uh, verse 2, uh, where you find that the whole world is fellowshipping and drinking out of God's, the devil's cup. And, you know, and along with that, I told you last week, if he did do that, if he would have done that, if, if Billy Sunday was truly wrong and the Baptist preachers today and the neo-evangelical guys are really right, and he did, then uh, you can't get around Habakkuk 2.15 that says that, uh, woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink that putteth the bottle to his mouth. And if Christ did that, then he violated the law. And we know from James chapter 2, verse 10, if you violate it in one, you're guilty of it all. So God's son couldn't save anybody because he's a guilty sinner just like me and you. Now, let me say that in this chapter here, John chapter 2, uh, there is, it's, it's, there's much to study here of all this uh, and to learn here. I've already told you how that in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Moses, in his first public ministry, he turned water to blood. Christ, in his first public ministry, turns water to wine and how that they are a type of blood. And, and honestly, guys, and I'm not going to get into it today, but certainly to whet your appetite, if you want to, depending on how deep you want to go, I mean, this is connected all the way back to Adam and Eve. I mean, when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3, the key to their fall, I don't know if you know this or not, but the key to their fall was a blood issue. Something changed about their blood. And I don't have to get into a lot of detail. If you've been around here in part of Institute and Bible Studies, you know from Judges chapter 9 that this forbidden fruit that we always hear so much about certainly wasn't an apple. My old grandmother said that the forbidden fruit wasn't an apple. The forbidden fruit was the pear on the ground. 
Adam and Eve. My grandma was pretty smart. Terrible cook, but she was pretty smart. <laughs> anyway, and of course, you know, when, when, when Eve ate it, something changed in her system to blood, and now she is in the flesh, and now why she's no more in innocence because, and I, again, I keep hating to bring up the Bible. Leviticus 17.11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, before the fall, they weren't in the flesh. They were in innocence. After the fall, whatever they ate, that forbidden fruit was a grape, a type of blood. Changed however it changed, and now she's in the flesh, and she's in, got blood. And, and to lay this out, and I, again, I'm not suggesting that I'm going to do this today. I don't have the time. But you'd have to see that when Adam got Eve from God, and here again, how many times have I told you every, every word in the Bible is important? God just didn't throw words in there like we do to fill up space. Every word is a calculated, orchestrated word to bring light to something else. Now, the quicker you learn that, the better off you're going to be. So you have when Adam gets Eve from God, he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, before the fall, she's flesh and bone. Doesn't mention blood. He doesn't say flesh and blood. He said flesh and bone because there was something different there. And again, when Christ comes out of the tomb in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, he's standing there before them and they think he's a spirit and he says to them, come on guys, does a spirit have flesh and bone? Well, Thomas in John chapter 20 didn't believe and he allowed him to put his hands in the wound. You think he was standing there bleeding all over him? Flesh and bone, flesh and bone, no blood. There's a reason for that. And the key to it, if you want to begin to open it up, found in John chapter 2. Now, chew on that for about 15 or 20 years. I did. And uh, see what you come up with. And places like our passages in John chapter 2, as far as I'm concerned, it's just a door to a deep mine shaft of gold. It's just an entranceway to truth that is discovered by following the established context through a biblical process. And I told you last week in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, right in the middle of the Laodicean church age, he talks about being rooted, being built up, <coughs> and then being established. That's how you get to uh, the place, and that's what we do here. Oh, that's what we try to do here. And when you get, and when you just believe the book and do what it says, the Holy Spirit of God will keep that door of truth open uh, in every aspect of your life. Now that's the key. Keeping the door of information from the Holy Spirit of God open in your life. Now, today, we're going to learn some things about our Bible today. And uh, this is going to be a message that's going to kind of tip the balance on, on two aspects. And uh, I, I, you're going to, you're, what I'm going to do today is to put a, a lot of things in your Bible, major pieces of your Bible, into an understandable context. <coughs> and you're going to learn some Bible today, and, and uh, 
and get uh, some things laid out in your Bible. And hopefully, and I told you Thursday night that you're ready to do that. Now, I'm going to read again John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, let's pray before we do that, and then we'll move into it. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Pray your blessings upon our time in your word today. Give me clarity of thought and understanding. Help me, Lord, to uh, preach this first section uh, clearly and then to uh, turn on the dime and lay out the second aspect of it clearly that we can go out of here with a clear understanding of a context of not only what God is doing here in this chapter from a prophetic sense, but how it impacts our lives on a daily, daily basis. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Okay, and the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman. Now, I've said this before, but you'll notice that Jesus never calls his mother, mother. He always calls her woman. Jesus, Jesus did two things consistently. Uh, he never baptized anybody, and he never called his real mother, Mary, mother. He always called her woman. And you may wonder why he did that, and the answer is that he knew that down the line there was going to be some religions come up that was going to teach that baptism was the way to go to heaven. And if Jesus would have baptized people, then you could have went back on that. But it's kind of hard to think that you go to heaven by being baptized when Jesus saved many, many people, but he never baptized anybody. Now, you'd think that would be a simple thing for a Church of Christ or a Catholic or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or Episcopalian to get. It didn't. The second thing, he never called her mother. He called her woman. And the reason why he did that, because he knew that there was going to be a church come in the line down the line. It was going to make Mary the mother of God. And he wasn't going to give license to that. Now, that's a great thing to understand, but it's also a great thing to show you how, listen to me, how God is always looking forward to give you truth. You better hold on to that one. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Great study on the hour there, but we don't have time to do that one either. His mother saith unto his servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Uh, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them with, to the brim. And when he said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. Notice how he, he keeps making you understand and drawing you back that it is the wine that was turned from the water. And knew not whence it was. But the servants withdrew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when they have well drunk, that doesn't mean they got drunk, it just means they've drank a lot. It dulls their taste buds. Um, uh, uh, that, that which is worse, but Yahus kept the good wine until now. 
This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now let's begin. Let's begin to lay this out, and I want to show you again, we're going to develop a context, not only of this passage, but I want to give you a context of life today. Certainly in the day and age that we live, we we need a context of life because we have lost it. I'm just telling you. And I and I and I as I begin to lay this out, you will remember many, many times I've told you how that in every aspect of the Bible there is three applications. You will have a historical application that it actually happened in history. You'll have a prophetic application that it's going to happen in the future, and then you will have a inspirational, practical, personal, however you want to call it, spiritual application that's going to help you tomorrow. Today, I'm going to give you, you already know what happened in history. I'm going to focus, first of all, on the doctoral, and then I'm going to slam dunk it into the inspirational. Now, we started this chapter. I laid it out and taught you one of the great keys in the Bible was the times and the seasons and the aspect of the third day always being connected to the second coming of Christ. I showed you, and you ought to have all this down by now. I showed you the two key days in the Bible all through history. One is the day of Christ, or it's called the day of Jesus Christ, and that will be the rapture. Now listen to me. Everything for a child of God, you and me, down through church history, but certainly in the day and age that we're living in, everything in the world today that you and I have to go through, deal with, (coughs) and understand is up against that day. You need to know that. You may not like that. You may not like me saying that. That may make you feel uncomfortable. I'm sorry. If truth of the Word of God makes you feel uncomfortable, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I just thought that threw that in. That sounded pretty good. Josh, write that down so I don't forget it, and I want to get that from you later. The second day is the day of the Lord. That'll be the second coming of Christ. And just as the day of Christ is everything for the Christian that we are up against that day, but we're going to stand there, the day of the Lord or the second coming is everything that the nation of Israel is up against. Those two days are the key to the Bible. Those two days will both render to the two people groups that God, down through the Bible and history, has seen fit to use. The nation of Israel, day of the Lord, and the body of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. I also showed you in the Bible that these times and the seasons, that there's a couple of different systems that you add to that. I showed you that there was an hour system to show you times in the season of the second coming. I gave you Matthew chapter 20 on that. I told you there was a watch system. And that was in Matthew chapter 13. And then I told you that there was a day system. And there's two day systems. And I gave you all this. This is just a caveat to bring you up to the main meal here. And there was a seven days that runs from Genesis to Revelation. that will bring you up to approximately the second coming. And then there's a three-day system that starts with Christ's first coming and runs you up approximately to the Lord's day or the second coming of Christ. Now, in John chapter 2, we have our first key 
that whatever is taking place here, doctrinally, is in some way connected to the day of the Lord. You'll notice, and once I, this is why I took the time to lay out the third day. Look at John chapter 2, verse 1. The third day there was a wedding. This is stories connected somehow to that third day, second coming. And I'm sure as I read this, you caught this because you're all smart people. You're all intuitive into the Bible. You're always paying attention to everything in the Bible. So I'm sure you got this. Look at verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible, but he never manifests his glory till the second coming of Christ. He didn't manifest his glory at the first coming. At the first coming, he came as the Son of Man. There was no glory connected with him dying on the cross and being smacked and spit on and his beard pulled out. This story has something to do with the manifestation of his glory, the third day, second coming. You should have caught that. You know, God, I love, I love him for a lot of reasons. But God is the master at illustrating truth through stories in the Bible about the people and their lives in the Bible. Or sometimes just the events of the Bible. He'll take a story and weave it around an event to show you a doctrinal truth. He'll, <clears throat> he'll, he'll do this by using key words. That if you get them down, they'll always give you the context so you can find out, open that door of truth. Thursday night I gave you for me, somebody asked a question on cherubim and Ezekiel, and I gave you out of Ezekiel 1, the whirlwind, the fire, the cloud, the brightness. They're all key words. You'll find words like endure. You'll find words like virgins, plural. You'll find words like the end, the day of Christ. You'll find words like patience or virgin, singular, that day, the day of the Lord, or in this case, the third day. When you see it, you know now the context is beginning to be defined for you. Now, all the Bible will point to one day, and that'll be the day of the Lord, not the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the day I'm looking for. But that's not the day that God is looking for. And God didn't write the Bible around the day that I'm going to go stand before the judgment seat of Christ, though I wished he would have. He wrote it around the day his son is going to sit down in Jerusalem and is crowned King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he disposes of all the governments. That's his day. Now, the second thing I want you to know about this day, God's day, the seventh one, will be an eternal day. In time, as we know it, this day in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 will last a thousand years. We think that the day of the Lord is just the day he comes back. No, no. From Genesis chapter 2 and from everything else in the Bible, we know that this day is a thousand-year period. It starts with, as the Bible says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus Christ like the sun coming up in the morning, and then that day lasts for a thousand years. You need to know that. And it's an eternal day. It never has any night. And then it just moves right on into Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and there's never any end to it. Just like in 
in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the evening and the morning were the first day, second day, third day. But when he got to that seventh day, there was no evening and the morning. It's a picture of this day, God's eternal day that lasts, as far as time is concerned, for a thousand years. And just as that day and the day of the Lord will be the theme of the Bible now, it will also be the theme of the Bible and the key theme throughout eternity. And you'll find this in places like Zechariah chapter 14. You'll find it connected with the Feast of Tabernacles in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. You'll find it all through the Bible. Now here's what I want. This is why I told you that. I'm going to establish a context for you of nine things that are going to happen in the future. Most of you know these things. When I say them, you will understand them. But what many of you don't know is the order of their happening. That, my friend, is context. And I want to do that for you today. And you'll leave here today with a big part of your Bible. Maybe. (laughs) Now, within this day, this thousand-year period... There's other events that take place. And you have to put them within the parentheses of this thousand-year reign. You have to put them within the context of this thousand-year reign, and there is a order to them. And one of the things you don't want to do with your Bible ever, ever, ever is get things out of order. And if any God's people get things out of order at these things, most of them know the terminology. They don't know how to explain it, and they certainly don't know where it fits in. Okay, John chapter 2. We're going to open up the mine shaft door. We're going down about 1,000 feet. Now, nine major events, nine of them. And you're going to walk out of here today with them laid out for you where you can Get them down, get them in your Bible someplace, and then never have to worry about it again when somebody asks you. Now, the first one is the rapture of the church. Now, let me say this. The rapture of the church is not part of the day of the Lord. It's the the beginning of the events that lead to that, but... It's, it's a, an event that I, I want you to have the complete order. So I'm explaining this to you. There are some events here that will take place before the actual day, but you need to know because they're important and I don't want you to get them out of whack. Now, the rapture of the church is the next event on God's calendar, prophetically. You'll find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll find it in type in Revelation chapter 1 through 4. And you'll find it in Song of Solomon chapter 2. And there'll be other places where you can find reference to that. And, you know, I, I told you Thursday night that the farther you get from the Bible in the Laodicean church period, the less of the Bible that you're going to have at the end. And what was an established doctrine passed down through the generations of the church is now being disputed by uh, Baptist preachers and certainly neo-evangelical guys that they will tell you that the rapture of the church is not a real deal. 
And, of course, they tell you that. Uh, I mean, I could give you the theological reason. It's easier just to tell you that they're really stupid when it comes to the Bible. I mean, I, I don't even know what to do. And I get it, you know, and their standard, I mean, you talk about stupidity. I told you this Thursday night. Their standard argument is, well, you don't find the word rapture in the Bible, which I told you, you don't find the word Bible in the Bible. But you have a Bible in your hand, and whether the word rapture is in your your Bible or not, (laughs) you're going if you're saved. The word rapture comes from the word rapto. It's a Latin word. It was given through affection like the word raptured with love by people who loved the fact that Christ was going to come back for them. So you can see that as we get farther away from Christ, from the Bible, closer to Christ's coming in a Christianity that hates everything about God, there's no love for him to come back. I get it. I totally get it. I get it. All through the Bible, the Bible is likened, the rapture is likened to a harvest. And you know that there's three parts to a harvest. There's the first fruits that are ripe first, and then there's the main body of the harvest, and then there's the gleanings, the stuff that get ripe later. And you'll find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, all three of those laid out in the proper order or context. The first fruits will be the Old Testament saints that go up. The main harvest will be you and me any second now. And then the gleanings will be the tribulation saints that go up at the end of the tribulation period. So you would think that you would find it. So you find for all three parts of that harvest, you'll find the term come up hither. Proverbs 25, 7, come up hither for the Old Testament saints. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, come up hither for the main body. Revelation chapter 11, verse 12, come up hither for the tribulation saints. It's all completely neatly laid out, if you believe the Bible. Now, the second event and the third event will be the tribulation itself. We know this to be called in the Bible's Daniel's 70th week based on the book of Daniel. And I listed two and three here because there's two parts to the tribulation period. Uh, The first part is the first three and a half years, which is simply called the tribulation period. The second three and a half years is called the great tribulation period or the abomination of desolation. And the tribulation runs for seven years. And we know that the tribulation is for the purging of the nation of Israel. God pours out his wrath on Israel Uh, and this is where they come back to God. Now, I I say that, and again, the farther we get away from the Word of God and the farther we get away from every truth of the Word of God, you're finding a lot of people today who claim to be Christian. I'm not saying that they're not, but they claim to be Christian, and they now say that the church is going to go through the tribulation period. And they look at what's going on around us, you know, as proof that, uh, you know, uh, that uh, we're going to go through the tribulation period. Let me tell you something. Whatever you're looking at around you, whatever you're seeing around you, whatever your fears are today, and whatever you're, you're just shaking in your boots because you ain't seen nothing yet. When that tribulation hits, it's going to make this look like an ice cream social, what we're going through today. And yet, again, God forbid we get into the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 is the verse in the Bible that clearly tells you that we're not going through the tribulation period as a church. Because when Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he told them, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, 
but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the tribulation is God's wrath on the nation of Israel and this world, but the church is not appointed to wrath. You would think somebody could figure that out, but I realize that when you embrace stupidity as it's a virtue, it's tough. And I'm telling you right now, the reason why I know the church isn't going through the tribulation period to face God's wrath is because on the, on the cross, Jesus Christ got my wrath there. You think you could figure that out, doctor, PhD, post hole digger? You think you could get that? During this time, you find that Moses and Elijah show up in the last three and a half years. Moses represents for the nation of Israel the law, and Elijah represents for the nation of Israel the prophets. Nothing about the church. Now, the fourth thing. The fourth thing will be the second coming of Christ. This now will be the beginning of God's day. My brother-in-law John, and I didn't even know this was out there. I guess there's some Baptist church out there in the country that is got a bunch of my old cassettes that when I preached at the Bible conferences with Dr. Ruckman years, and, years ago, back in the 80s and the early 90s, and uh, at, at the uh, Bad Attitude Baptist blowout. And uh, he sent me one the other week, and then he sent me two more. Uh, and I don't know where he's finding them. This guy someplace has got a Baptist Bible-believing church, and he's, he's done a really good job of, of displaying how I preached it. But I preached in 1980, I think it's 84. I preached a message on the second coming of Christ. And uh, we're going to put that message in a little header underneath when you come down. And if we get any more, we'll put them in there where you can actually hear that message. Of, of the way you used to preach to God's people. And uh, it's, a, it's a thing where uh, it, it, you just got to hear it. I mean, it just all there is to it. I mean, it's just uh, the time, the, the, the mood back there, the theme back there of God's people, the spirit back there. I mean, it was something else. And I don't even think you could preach a message. Maybe here you could, but I don't think you could even preach a message like that. There'd be too many people picking it apart or too many people don't like it. You know, most of God's people, and this is a contradiction of terms, most of God's people today didn't wake up this morning and the first thing out of the lips was, Lord, would you come back today, please? You know, there's something wrong with you if that wasn't your first prayer. I love you. I'm not mad. I mean, uh, and people out there listening to this, you know, and I know many of you are home with your, your illnesses and you got to stay there, man. Take care of yourself, absolutely. But I am just telling you, I'm just telling you, you didn't wake up this morning and the first thing out of your mind was, Lord, I wish you'd come back today. First thing you thought about was a bagel and coffee. First thing you thought about was turning on Fox News to find out what was going on in the world today. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, well, don't let me get stopping there. I'm just getting started here. Now, within this thousand-year day, you have some events that are taking place that you need to get in order here. See, I brought it up now. Rapture, tribulation, two pieces of that. Now we're at the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, and this runs for a thousand years of time. And within this thousand years, Here's the other events you have in the order they take place. All right. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. He comes down and we come with him. The fifth thing that takes place 
right at the second coming of Christ will be the battle of Armageddon. That'll be Revelation 16, 16. You want to get these in the right order. The sixth thing that takes place right at the, he comes down and the battle of Armageddon takes place. The next event will be the post-tribulation rapture of the tribulation saints. You'll find this in Matthew chapter 25 and Revelation chapter 11. Now, I don't want to suggest that, you know, you got a stopwatch there and all right, at, at 11 o'clock he comes back at 11.05, the battle of Armageddon at 11.15 and go up. This all seems to take place almost instantaneously. Listen to me. But there's an order to it. There's a context to it. And the order is he comes back, the battle of Armageddon, post-tribulation rapture, in that order. Now, the seventh thing. At some point, you can see it on the chart over there, at some point, as he's coming back and these events are taking place, remember now, we are up in heaven. And at some corresponding point in time, when all this is unfailing, and I'm giving you the order to the best of I can, the marriage of the church to Christ takes place. This will be the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19 verse 7 says that during the tribulation while it was taking place, we went to the judgment seat of Christ and now it says, the bride hath made herself ready and now the marriage between you and me as the bride of Christ, a virgin, to the Son of God takes place. And you'll see this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, where it simply says, The marriage of the Lamb has come. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, where there is a wedding and somebody's sent out to bring guests to come to this wedding. Don't have time to get into that, but that's what it is. You'll find in Matthew chapter 25, verse 10, uh, 25 verses 1 through 10, the story of, of 10 virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. The five that are foolish get canned out of the way, and the five, the bridegroom comes, and they go with him to the wedding. Matthew 25, 10. Now, we ain't done yet, but now, it's this marriage that you have pictured in John chapter 2. Doctrinally, the third day marriage in Cana is a picture of the third day marriage of the church to Jesus Christ. Now the eighth thing. At this point, after the marriage we go into what is called the millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ lasts for 1,000 years. This teaching that we believe and that I'm teaching you this morning is based on the pre-millennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I must tell you that among Baptists and certainly the neo-evangelical crowd, you'll find, again, as you would expect, a rejection of premillennialism. You have those who teach a postmillennialism. 
You have those that teach an all-millennialism. A post-millennialism is simply what the the liberals of this world uh, believe uh, that uh, you and I are going to make the world a better place to live and then Christ is going to come back after we clean it up. Yeah, good point, Troy. The other one is that it's just a spiritual millennium and it's not really real. And of course, we know that those two are fake and phony the way we know all heresy. You know why? Because, as I told you the other night, Paul told Timothy... The same things I've committed to you, you commit to faithful men. The premillennial return of Christ is not only taught from Genesis to Revelation, but it's been passed down for the last 2,000 years. But when you don't know history, then you get caught up in that. You know, and so you see that. Now, at some point in the millennium, here comes number nine. There is a wedding supper. And for this, you'll want to see... Psalms 45, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, and Luke chapter 14, verse 15 through 24. Christ made a reference to this supper in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, when he's in the upper room and he has the last supper. I've always loved people that, you want to show how stupid you are with the Bible? How many, how many times I heard a guy say, well, the Last Supper, you know, is the, is, the, is the Last Supper he had before they crucified him. Is that the limit of your Bible understanding? You know why he called it the Last Supper? Because, read it, let's read it. Let's, let's, let's do a nasty thing. Let's set a context. Ooh. Verse 20, 20. 29, but I say unto you, (coughs) I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. He just told you that it was grape juice. See that? Now, how in the world do you, we base the Lord's Supper off of this? How in the world do you drink fermented hooch when he clearly told you it was the fruit of the vine? You know how you do it? Because you hate that book. That's how you do it. You hate everything about it. And you hate anybody that stands with it. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until (laughs) that day when I drink it new with you in my kingdom, my Father's kingdom. It wasn't the last supper that he was going to have before he died. It was the last supper he's going to have before he has the real one coming up. Context. Now, this wedding supper is illustrated in the story of John chapter 2 with his marriage. So in John chapter 2 will be doctrinally the third day, the second coming, the marriage and the marriage supper. Note verse 1. The mother of Jesus was there. That always stuck out to me because why do I need to know that? I'll tell you why I need to know that because she's a type of Revelation chapter 12 of the nation of Israel. And when you get into Psalms 45, Matthew 22, Matthew 25, and the Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, you find out that Israel is at this dinner. 
And he did these things in John chapter 2 that his glory would come forth. Second coming. Now, here it comes. I, I just said here it comes. I'm going to say here it comes four or five times more. So, but here it comes. Now, here's a great principle for all of us. Watch this. Verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was. You know what he did? At this wedding, Christ gave them a taste of the supernatural wine that's at the coming wedding feast. But a guy said, I've never tasted anything like this ever in my life. You haven't. But he substantiated what there's a picture of, and supernaturally, when he turned that water to wine, they tasted what we're going to taste. Now, I'm just going to tell you here, there's an incredible, I mean incredible practical lesson in this wedding on the third day, and now I'm going to switch from the doctrinal, and I'm going to, as a hungry giant, coming home for lunch. Talk about this wedding on the third day and the supernatural miracles of the water to wine, the wedding feast, as it applies to me and you. And you don't want to miss this, even though many of you, especially some of you listening, will definitely want to miss this. It's a lesson to God's people that they completely miss. It's why, one of the reasons, anyhow, that God's people today are so defeated and miserable. In fact, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, in critiquing the church today that you and I are part of, clear, I know, we think we're big, we think we got it together, we think we have it all, and the Bible says we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Not the church of Jesus Christ today. So before you get on your high horse, just look and see. Somebody just shot that horse right out from under you. And the great lesson is this, if you can get to her today. The great lesson is God will give you right now, down here on earth, a little taste of heaven and the supernatural things that we're going to experience once we get home to heaven to get us through down here. Right now, Luke chapter 19 tells me clearly and plainly, I'm to occupy till he comes. That doesn't mean I'm to hide at home, hide under the bed, hide in the garage because of, of what's going on in the world today and especially in America. It's I am to occupy. And we know along with that that we, are, we sojourn in a strange land, as, or we should. I need to preface this because... God's people are so foreign to this God. We should understand that we are sojourning in a strange land. That we are wanderers for God. We are pilgrims like Abraham going to a land that he had never known that God promised him. And he is seeking like I'm seeking and you should be seeking a better country. Somebody said one time, and it was an incredible statement. Somebody said one time, and I think it was me. (laughs) 
For an unsaved man, this life on earth will be as close as any unsaved man will ever get to heaven. And for a saved man, this life on planet earth will be as close as we'll ever get to going to hell. And brother, that's a dying truth. This life is no friend of a child of God. This world is no friend to a child of God. You think it is. You've aligned yourself. No, no, no. You've married yourself to it. This life is a veil of tears. It's filled with hospitals, funeral homes, hospice workers, cancer wards, broken lives, broken families, civil unrest, corruption, lawlessness, defying everything that every value system that we ever held. God's people are defeated. They're disillusioned. We toil. We labor. We endure persecution. Or we should. And the devil will use every means to stop us. Keep us from what seeing what God has called us to do and certainly from doing it. And in our sojourning, in our travels through this foreign land that I'm a pilgrim in, the reason why God's people in most cases never make it, they quit, they give up, they seek some sanctuary someplace. Because they never got a taste of what they got in John chapter 2. They never got a taste of the supernatural. The wine that God turned from water that a guy drank and he said, Wow! Never in my life. Because they've never tasted of the new things waiting for you and me on the other side. There's no real miracles of God in God's people's lives today. You know why? Because there's no real taste of supernatural things. One of the boys said it when they preached New Year's Eve. I can't remember who it was, but one of them said it. What did you do last week for God that an unsaved person couldn't have done? What miracles did God do in your life last week? You fall in love with the things of earth, with life, things here, more than the things over there. So when these things start to shake, when the foundation of your little world begins to crumble, you run to your bedroom, you get under the bed, you hide in the garage. You love the things of this earth more than the things over there on the other side. That's why Paul in Colossians chapter 3 in the midst of the Laodicean church period, he told us to set 
our affections on things above where Christ sitteth. A couple of Thursday nights, one of our little gals asked that question, what are those 12 things? And I went through those 12 things. 12 things that are above. 12 things that are new. 12 things that are separated from this world where you're to set your affections and you look at them every day. And when you go through the trials and the pressures and all of the sojourning that we have to go through, that's what keeps your perspective. That's what gives you purpose. That's what gives you position. Oh, he'll give you people to work with. And I know, you start to work with people and maybe one out of five, one out of six makes it. There's so many people today that they want to start out doing right, but when the rubber meets the road and they've got to really, really, really change some things, they're gone. They're out. They, they, they leave. They're gone. And that's okay. And I know we've all experienced that. Every one of you that work with me, with people, you've experienced that. And you know what I'm about to say is true. You may have five idiots in a row that bail out on you. And then you get that one, don't you? You get that one that just loves the Word of God. You get that one that if you told them that the moon's made out of green cheese because God told you, they'd be buying some crackers so they could have it when he comes back. They love God, they love the Word of God, and all they want to do is learn the Word of God. You know what that is? That's a little taste of what it's going to be over there. That gets you through. That, that helps you deal with all the stuff that are out there. You care less about the pandemic virus floating around. You care less about the government and what's happening when you focus on the changing of somebody's life, that God is actually using you to do it. little taste on the other side. You see it in the relationships you build. You know, in every church, and you hear this all the time, well, you know, you know there's a click in that church. I hope so. I wouldn't want to go to church without a click, would you? There's nothing wrong with a click as long as it's God's click. And most generally, over my almost 50 years, most generally, the people who say there's clicks in a church are the ones who don't want to do anything and don't want to be part of the click that's doing anything. So it's an easy thing to do, easy thing to say. Well, there's a lot of clicks in that church. Well, I hope so. Praise the Lord. As long as the click is doing what God wants you to do, yeah, I'm all for it. Relationships. Now, I know when we get in heaven, there'll be no strife, there'll be no problems, there'll be no issues. Context will rule the day. But, you know, in this sojourning, For me, anyhow, I'm sure it's true for many of you. Isn't it great to have people who you know are your really friends that are true to stick with the Word of God? They don't love you because of you. They love you because of the book that God put in both of your lives. And you'll get through everything together. There'll never be a day that they come in and they say, I'm upset about this or I'm leaving because of this. 
Those kind of people have nothing, nothing invested in a church. So when push comes to shove, it's easy for them to leave because there's no investment. When you have a relationship with people in the ministry, your life is invested here, and you're not going to just throw that away. A little taste of what's over there. I, I, I don't really think that when we get to heaven, two Christians, two Baptists are going to get in a fight, and the other Christian's going to say to God, I'm leaving! I'm going to another church. Christ will say, yeah, well, let's just head south. (laughs) Head south. And you'll know when you're getting close because you'll yell out to me, am I, am I, I I can't see it. Am I getting warm yet? The bond of the Word of God we have. Paul talks about it all the time, but Laodicea is so far from it. But I found that in every Laodicea, you're going to find, or excuse me, even in Laodicea, you're going to find people that want to have that bond with the Word of God. And it's a thing where, I don't know what that, it's all of this is just a little taste of what it's going to be like over there that'll get us through. I told you before, I mean, I understand the Word of God and God, I get all that, but I told you before, as push comes to shove in the Laodicean church, it's coming to the point where all we're going to have is each other. And that may get down to 10, 20, 25 people before it's all over. Somebody, I know, and I know this is not popular. I know that maybe people here aren't liking this, and probably people at home aren't liking it. And my answer is, what are you going to do? Not come back? <laughs> do you know what's wrong with most of God's people today? Why they get out of fellowship? Why they're so terrified and afraid of what's going on around them? Why they get disgruntled, discouraged. Why they leave God, dump the Bible, leave churches. I'll tell you in a heartbeat what the problem is. You got a bad taste in your mouth. You're not tasting the new things. You're not tasting the supernatural things. You got a mouth full of gravel. You've been eating the asphalt off the roads of this world. Last week, we had the inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden. And it was interesting to me to watch The attitude of of, of people in general, but I focused on God's people. I mean, you know, if you watch, even the enemies that didn't like like Joe Biden, and I told you, he's not my enemy. I think he's a cool guy. I I, I think he sit down and we could, I could, you could have some fun with him. I think he's, I mean, anybody in a press conference that looks at a reporter and says, come on, man, give me a break. I like a guy like that. So I didn't care. But all across the news, Fox News, 
CNN, NBC, PBS. What a day, what a great day to be an American. To see democracy at work. And some of God's people, you know, they they some of them liked it. Some of them thought that Joe Biden was a great, going to be a great president, and maybe he will, and they're all excited about it. Everybody else has got their nose bent in a joint because Trump didn't get in, you know, and now everybody that doesn't, you know, like Trump is a, you know, dying and going to hell and all that. Oh, it's crazy stuff out there. And I sat there, and I, 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 I watched it. I, I watched it for one reason. I wanted to reinforce in myself, I don't care. I don't care who got to be president. I don't care what they do at the inauguration. I watched it for one reason, because I wanted to cement in my mind and maybe even in my mouth, that's not the inaugural that I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for the one when my Jesus comes back and he sits down in the throne of Jerusalem and he's crowned King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm in. That's the only one I care about. Everything else in this world, for me, can't speak for you, but for me, it's just a means to that end. Instead of taking the things above and setting your affections on them, you got a mouthful of gravel and asphalt of this world. That's why there's no blessings in your life. That's why there's no miracles in our lives. We do week after week exactly for God what an unsaved man can do. There's no people in our lives that we're investing in. There's no victory. There's, there's, there, you, 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 we've lost every value that we, we know is in the Bible. I, I had a lady one, and this is a mindset. I knew a lady one time, this has been years ago. And, and uh, the whole family was an idiot. So I don't even what to tell you. And, and she would get on, they would have a need. And she would get on Facebook you might know, and she would lay out this need and say, oh, uh, we're praying, pray with us that God would meet this need. And then somebody out there, dumber than her, would meet her need. You know you're preaching pretty hard when your everything keeps popping out of your head. <clears throat> Hang on. People on the left and right may get hit with something flying here in a minute. And I think that, I look at myself, and then she'd get on and say, oh, thank God. God answered my prayer. Oh, thank the Lord. Lord is so good. You know, no, you know what? You're an idiot. Let me tell you how it's supposed to work. If you've got a need in your life, try this. Don't tell anybody. Don't put it on social media. Don't tell anybody but God. And just see if he comes through for you. Because that's the only way you know that it was him and not you manipulating it. 
But you see, we don't have enough faith to do that. Why? Because we always manipulate everything in our lives. You may have experienced a miracle of the new birth, probably. But boy, that's where the miracle stopped. You ever notice this, the big picture? Big picture of life. I'm in the process right now of writing another book that is going to be designed for pastors. I have so many of them, and they're always asking me, you know, and so I decided I've been doing it for a while. It's going to be a while before I'm done. But I decided to put a book, write a book directly to pastors. And I'm going to talk about in each chapter, maybe 10, 12, 15 chapters, 12 or 15 things as a pastor, you better know going in before you try to pastor and start a church. Things that I have learned in almost 50 years of ministry. And and one of the chapters is simply going to be called Trash Day. You know, I've learned through the years that people who are the biggest complainers the biggest backbiters, the biggest troublemakers will in their life, take note now, get a pencil and paper here. Bible says Romans 16, 17 to 27, mark them, write them down. They never have any miracles in their life. God does nothing with them. Nobody that they have been used of God to help establish and change their life. They have no ministry. They have no victory. They have absolutely no power. They've never won a soul to Christ in their life. Their family, in most cases, is a disaster. And they couldn't teach the Bible if you put a gun to their head. And as far as the 12 things to set your affections on, that's a pipe dream for them. But yet, notice it. Write it down. Don't take my word for it. Learn from history. They'll always attack the ones who have those things. I'm going to tell you the great lesson of Trash Day is the people that have nothing going on with God despise the ones that do. That bad taste in your mouth is the filth of the world that you have pretended is your Christianity. You couldn't lay out the twelve areas above and anew of our affections if your life depended on it. Now, there is a great example of what I'm trying to say this morning, and I want you to listen. And I know this is probably way too much Bible. I could give you a couple other churches where you get a nice little soft sermon this morning. Pat in the back. Wonderful to have you here today. But the greatest example of this, I think, is found in Hebrews chapter 11, God's Hall of Fame. We've been studying it. We haven't got into it yet, but we're cracking the case on the Institute. And you'll find in Hebrews chapter 11 some 15 men or women who God called and used to do, to do his work. And as you read down through there, you'll find that they suffered. They had tremendous trials. They went through great persecution. They had heartache, just like we do. And the model for us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 is he says that all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
And he starts with Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Esau, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samuel, or Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Now, I, I don't know if you have even picked this up yet, but you better. You know that Saul's not mentioned in this list? I suggest for you, with a mouthful of gravel, spend another six, seven, eight months finding out why. It may be to your benefit. I mean, you do see that he had, he put a, in the list here, he put a drunk, Noah. He put someone who lied, Abraham. He put somebody in here who laughed at God, Sarah. He put in here somebody that he said later on was vain and profane, Esau. He put in a schemer by the name of Jacob. He put in a murderer by the name of Moses. He put in a hooker by the name of Rahab. He put in a womanizer by the name of Samson. He put an idolater in the name of Gideon. And he put a guy who killed his own daughter because of his spiritual pride, Jephthah. And he put a man who committed murder and adultery, David. No soul! You better find out why. And he says in verse 33, through, he says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, watched valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. That ought to be the prayer of every one of us here today when we stand at that day of Jesus Christ. That Christ looks at us and says one thing, Bob, Jim, Tom, Mary, Sue, stand right here. And I want everybody to know the world, as they saw them, they were not worthy. A child of God being worthy of the world. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me after what these people have went through? And I know, hey, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's just words, isn't it? It's just meaningless verses that mean nothing to you. It's just some old rabid old guy up here just spouting this stuff off. It's real. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Wonder what kept them going. 
I'll tell you what kept them going. They tasted what's new. They had a vision. They saw it afar off. They saw what was coming. They saw what was coming was better because it was from above. That's the reason why they're in God's Hall of Fame. Through faith, they never took their eyes off their perspective. They never took their eyes off their position or their purpose. They saw what was, what was coming. God gave them the hope and miracles of what's new and above. And verse 27 says that they endured. Are you? They endured. Are you? They never stopped. One of them ever stopped doing what God was doing in the midst of all that stuff. The Bible says they endured. I just want to ask you, are you enduring? Are you enduring? They did. Some of them got sawed in half. How do you endure that? Cruel mockerings, beatings, whippings, yet they endured. And we, <laughs> we today face nothing like that yet. How did they endure? Verse 27, they endured as seeing him who is invisible. They saw what was coming from God more than what was coming from the world. They got a taste of that heavenly wine. They got a taste of a miraculous miracle that God, through their sufferings and their trials, kept them going because they realized that they were pilgrims. They experienced the miracles of God working in their lives. They saw what God was doing with them more than what the world wanted to do to them. Go through sometime. I know you won't. Go through sometime and just list the miracles of God in their lives and then compare it with your own list. How they survive, all the trials, the struggles, all the problems they went through, the persecution. Verse 13 says, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, just like me and you, but having seen them afar off. Oh, there it is. They went through everything they went through, but they saw the promises that were afar off. And look at that. And were persuaded of them. Are you? Are you? Could you stick your head out from under your bed just a little bit farther? Are you? Are you persuaded that the promises are really real? Laity in Christianity makes me sick. God's people today, hey, I've been in this business way too long, almost 50 years, and I'm telling you, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of God's people that are so whamsy-mamsy. I'm tired of God's people who say one thing and can't stand for anything. I'm so sick and tired of God's people that are made out of paper mache. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, the promises, and embraced them. What are we embracing today? Really, what are we embracing today as God's people? Like John chapter 2, God gave them a little taste of heaven. In our lives today, He'll give us 
a little taste of it too. But I'm telling you right now, the gravel in our mouths, the asphalt, kills the taste of those 12 things that are new and above. For me, the story of supernatural wine is an encouragement for me by, uh, by understanding how God does what he does. I understand what's coming. But don't lose sight of what God is doing. When tough times come, just look what he's doing with you. Taste the supernatural. Endure as seeing him who is invisible. Come and dine. The master calleth. Come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table anytime. Come and dine or run and hide. Now here it comes. You ain't going to like this. Now would be a great time to turn it off. Probably already have. But I'm sorry. I can't speak for you. I'm a Bible believer. I believe all of the Bible. I don't get the luxury that some of you want to have a picking and choosing what you want to follow and what you want to believe. I don't have that luxury. So you're not going to like this. You're not. But here it comes. Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. The middle of Laodicea. The middle of today, God's judgment. This great pandemic. That's only getting worse. A government that is completely broken down and shut down. And what's got God's people today so afraid and so fearful? Verse 7 says, and I quoted this to you last week, that we should be rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as ye have been taught. Here it comes. Rooted, built up in Him. Here it comes. Rooted, built up in Him and established. Abounding therein with all thanksgiving. There we are. Are you thanking God for the way the country is going today? I am. Do you have the instability to thank God for the pandemic that's sweeping across this country? I am. Because I know that 88 times in the Bible, he's judged people and nations by disease and sickness. And I know why. You're so tunnel vision, all you can see right now is what is affecting you around you. You don't see the big picture. And yet you call yourself a Christian. Maybe you are. When the persecution comes, will you thank God for it? When they separate you from your wife or your kids or your wife or your husband, I shouldn't have said that. Somebody will thank God for that. <clears throat> will you thank God for the persecution that's coming? I mean, what does that verse really mean? I, 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 I know. You know what? You're just like the liberals that want to cut up the Bible. You just want to leave it in there but still take it out. 
My Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and everything gives thanks, for this is the will of God uh, in Christ Jesus concerning you. What do you do with that? It says, and everything gives thanks. There wasn't a clause there for the pandemic. There wasn't a clause there for something that's uncomfortable to you. There wasn't a clause there for something that you don't like or something that is going to happen in the government that's going to upset your day and ruin your this and ruin your that. There was no clause there for that. He simply said, in everything, give thanks. It's the will of God for you. Wow. What do you want me to do with that? Some of it would like me to do with it what you've done with it. Ignore it. I've had a taste. I've seen the hand of God do things that are miracles. I have no doubt that in the midst of this terrible pandemic, and I think it's a terrible thing that we have to go through, but I can thank God for it because it opens up opportunities with people that maybe I would never have any other way. Can you not see it that way? Here, come on. Slide out under the bed just a little bit. All I can see is your nose. Come on. I understand the Bible says as it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. I get it. I see it. I understand it. I totally, totally, totally get it. But I've had a taste. I know what it says back there in Genesis that every thought of man was evil continually. That's today. I didn't have to have Fox News tell me that. I read that in Genesis 6, six chapters in. As it was in the days of Lot, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. I understand the rise of homosexuality, same-sex marriages, lesbianism, and all that stuff. You know what? They just signed a thing last week that they just took the United States Army and turned it into a gay military. One of the first things that they did was the fact that they're going to make it okay for gays and lesbians to join the military and make a gay army out of it. There was a school in California that was teaching five-year-olds. It's coming. Teaching five-year-olds that they didn't have to be satisfied if they were a boy and a girl at five years old, that as they got older, they could actually decide for themselves what gender they wanted to be. Now, that's what they're going to teach your kids. You say, how do you give thanks? See, this is it. How do you give thanks for something like that? Easy. If that's what it takes to get to the, my day and get home to be with the Lord, bring it on. You say, well, I just think that that's terrible that you think that you would rejoice. Hey, you're an idiot. What teacher on this planet should have more control over your child than you? Really? You know why you're upset with something like that? Because you're not teaching your child anything about the Bible. 
And when they go to school and they're five, that teacher will have more influence to them, just like the, 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 uh, you know, the gym teacher or the, this teacher or that teacher, and you'll lose complete control. Why? You see, I don't have to fear those things, and neither should you, because you as a parent have more control over your child than anybody on this planet unless you give it over to them. So don't give me that gas. Some of God's people remind me of three beef burritos and a chili dog. Gas. Took you a while, but you got it. This world's in a mess. There's nothing good about it. Hey, I have watched parents put their kids in the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts and think like that's, that's a Christian thing and that's going to be good and it's going to make my boy and girl and it's going to really give them this and teach them that. As we speak right now, today, this moment, Boy Scouts of America, 90,000, 90,000, 90,000 lawsuits of pedophiles against young boys and Boy Scouts. And it's growing every day. You are so foolish to think that there's anything out there in the world that is going to be better than what God gives you here. John chapter 2, just God giving me a taste of what's coming. You watch your television and... (laughs) You get that commercial in there and the guy winds up saying, what's in your wallet? Well, I'm asking today, what's in your mouth? The new things or the gravel? You see, this world is not for me. Maybe it's for you. And maybe that's why you fear it so much because of the fact that you're so much a part of it. And you have lost the things that we should be persuaded on, the promises that just like those 15 people got through what they got through, we can get through what we got to get through. I'm done with it, man. Don't talk to me about it. You want to leave? Hit the door. I'm so sick and tired of God's people whining and complaining when you got the greatest book on the planet that will give you everything you need. There was a missionary one time that he served 40 years on the mission field. His wife died on the mission field. One of his children died, but he stayed faithful for 40 years in a country, a very primitive country. I can't remember where it was now, and I don't want to speak the wrong country, but he, for 40 years, his health was bad. He couldn't continue on. He had trained up men to take his work and he began to come home and he sailed home on a, on a boat back in the 20s and he sailed home on a big boat and on that same boat there was some big dignitary that, from America that was coming on over on the same boat and this guy had given all of his life to the mission field and he was beat up 
Sometimes you have to go about 40, 50 years into ministry really putting your shoulder to the grindstone and getting beat up to understand how that wears you out and, and, and what it does to you. And this old boy, had he had paid the price. And the ship came in to dock in New York and he walked up as they were getting the gangplank ready and he looked over there and there was, must have been a crowd of a two, 3,000 people all with their signs for this dignitary. There was a band playing. The mayor of the city was there with a key to the city to New York. And this dignitary got to go off first and he, he walked down there and, and they gave him the key and everybody was happy. They bought a big limousine and drove him off and the, they crowd waited and then they let everybody else get off. And this old missionary started to walk down that gangplank. And he started to feel sorry for himself, and I understand it. And he got a little complaining, and he says, God, he says, this guy did nothing. And he says, and he comes home, and there's 3,000 people there with a brass band, and I spent 40 years serving you in that mission field, and I've come home, and there's nobody here to meet me. And he started to get down and feel sorrow for himself. About that time, as many of you will understand, the Holy Spirit of God put his arm around him, whispered in his ear, okay buddy you're not home yet you better get it folks quit living your life like this is where it is you're not home yet John 2 the miracle of that guy tasted it oh I get it I have tasted those miracles for almost 50 years. Nothing will get you through and keep you where you need to be and God using you and the miracles unfolding in your life right before you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, I know not a popular message today, but it's nothing truer than I ever preached. We like to talk about the things that behoove us when it comes to the Bible, but things like giving thanks for all things in a time when it's hard to give thanks is not very popular. Being grounded and rooted and established in the Word of God and then trusting in those things and then enduring through what we're going through by seeing Him who is invisible. It's not popular today easier to align ourselves with the Republicans or the Democrats or the liberals or, or the world or whatever and just forget the fact that we're pilgrims. We don't need to get our roots down too deep. And we need to stay focused. If we're going to be rooted in anything, it needs to be the promises of the Word of God, not the world. We love you. We thank you and praise you and all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Help us through our sojourning, through our enduring. I remember the time that somebody asked my father and the Lord, Mel Sabaka, and things weren't nearly as bad back then, but somebody asked him, Mel, are you enduring your salvation or are you enjoying your salvation? And without hesitating, he said, no, neither. He says, I'm enjoying my enduring that's what we need to do today. Lord, I don't care if this church goes down to 20 people. Let us be 20 faithful people 
I don't care if everybody leaves. I don't care if everybody decides they don't want to be part of this. Messages like this are too tough for them. I get it. I get it. I understand. This is not for you. This is for an elite group of people who are going to stand fast and hold the line. I get it. But help us be faithful no matter who we have. And help us to endure as seeing him who is invisible. And never, never, never let us forget. No matter what goes on in this world, we're not home yet. But there's a day coming when we will be. The day of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. And I ask all these things. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.